pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie? Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. You're motoring. I believe in your son. I believe he's the future. And his story is going to make us want to fly. But a shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with cinematographer Robert Richardson about his illustrious career, including one of his latest films that he worked on, which is Ben Affleck's Air. Had a great time talking with Mr. Richardson, and I hope you have a great time listening to it. Enjoy the interview. How did you even get into cinematography? It began at University of Vermont, where I went to study geology and oceanography, which were horrible concepts. It was a lost mind, maybe too many drugs, and prep school, which I'd been sent away to because a lot of other reasons. And I ended up seeing Bergman and watch a series of films. And that convinced me that film should be my future. Was it one particular Bergman? The first one I saw was Seventh Seal. And then I don't remember the particular order, but I know that Wild Strawberries was pretty close to the second. Power of the Wolf followed. It was in that sort of zone of his filmmaking. And 
it was so clear to me that this is something that was stimulating me intellectually, but also it just felt natural. It felt, this is it. This is, what are you doing here wanting to look at rocks? This is not you looking at rocks. You want to learn about science? You don't have that brain, Bob. You burned it out years ago. But I've always contended that cinematography, so much of it is science, or at least the study of light and the lenses and the focal lengths and just so many of those things. You have to have that art brain and that science brain, at least in my mind. I think there are cinematographers that do have that. I am not one of those. I can see and feel a lens. I know what I appreciate when I see a particular focal length up or the contrast level of a certain lens. But with film, for example, I never understood the toe and the shoulder to the level that a man like Alan Davio at that time, who I would ask questions of, or the Vilma Zygmunds, you know, it's like you would try to talk to anyone with more knowledge than I had, which was virtually everybody. And understand you can read it in a Kodak manual and that will not take you anywhere. You have to experiment. That time people were flashing. You know, put so much of a illuminate the film ahead of time to reduce your levels of contrast and you'd pull and push, et cetera. And there were things that you would try, but I didn't understand them well enough to utilize it in my work. I didn't have that certainly don't have that capability as an artist, as a film, as a cinematographer for film. Digitally, it seems to be an easier alternative for cinematographers today than film. I still advocate the utilization of, of a meter. I don't believe that you should rest upon a DIT to tell you what your exposure should be. If you're pulling your exposure, they're better at it probably than you are because you can't get your fingers around the T-stop in a way that will be, can still operate a camera. You might need to turn to them. I try to pull my own. I personally don't care if I'm one half stop and digital off. To me, there's nothing I can do about it because I mean, what I mean by that is if I'm looking at an image with, through the eyepiece and the DIT comes and says, well, you're one half or one quarter stop off. My general response is, thank you, but let me just do it. And I said, if they do it again, I usually say, have you ever been in a DI? Have, have you looked at how many stops we have here capable of? Are we 13 stops here, folks, 13. If I'm one half off one direction or another, then you also look at the errors of, of what's taking place in the digital world. None of the monitors are calibrated. You have the DITS monitor, which is supposedly calibrated. But then all these other monitors go out to other people. The director's looking at a monitor, which doesn't have, he's not flagged out. He's getting daylight on it. It's getting spill light, whatever it is. And it happens to be, he changed it to make it what he liked. And so no matter what you do, I was shooting a commercial the, just last week, two weeks ago in Toronto. And Chris, who I'm a friend with said, Hey, looks overexposed. Are you sure? And I said, Chris, I don't know what monitor you're looking at. He was looking at the camera assistance monitor. The camera assistants have these things tweaked so bright to be able to see their focus. Anyway, there's pluses and minuses to every new uh, development technologically. And that's one of the minuses. 
How did you make that transition from oceanography into being a cinematographer? What was your path after that? I took a year off. I live on Cape Cod. I went home to the Cape. I became a manager in a local movie theater. And I, in the meantime, went to NYU, Rhode Island School of Design, USC, UCLA, after to evaluate their film programs. And there were a couple others, but those were the primary four. And then I applied and got into, I didn't get into NYU. I got into Rhode Island School of Design and USC. But USC required me to do a dual major. And I don't remember whether UCLA said yes or no. Uh, I decided to go to RISD because the classes were small and the equipment was larger, more available than in any, any of oh, may have gotten into NYU. I don't know. And it was like, it was a no brainer for me. Let's go right on school of design. They've got their own area 16s and there's only seven of us. We're not going to have a problem getting the equipment. Whereas you have a lot of problem getting the equipment at that time in the other schools. So that's why I made that choice. And while I was there, of course, writing, directing, and shooting and editing and working with other directors on their projects and whatever capacity they wanted. And at the end of that, I had to make a decision where I was going to go, which I determined I would make that American Film Institute. And at the American Film Institute, I had to make a choice of what I wanted to do. And my experience at RISD told me I wasn't a director. It didn't tell me I was a cinematographer either, but I chose to do it and I applied and they took me and that was led to the path that I'm currently on. How did you first meet Oliver Stone? At AFI, I, Tom Richmond was my year, Juan Ruiz Anchia, Ron Ruiz Anchia was also a cinematographer in my year and I had gone with Ramon Menendez, who was a director. He agreed, he spoke Spanish, and he agreed to join me as a sound man. And we went to El Salvador during the war, and we covered the war from the perspective of the right, which is, wasn't my perspective at that time. We were covering de you know, death squads and the military. My leanings were another way, but there was a French crew shooting with a British director who was the left and they were going to put these two films together, these two sides, point of views together from Chris and from Jeff Harmon, who was my director. And Jeff was fantastic and learned quite a bit from him, but that was what happened. Ramon went when I came back after the war, uh, after shooting the war, Ramon got a job called Salvador as an AD. And Juan Ruiz Anchia was the slated DP. The film got delayed a number of times, and I, Juan thought he wasn't a perfect match for Oliver. And I believe that Ramon mentioned, mentioned myself, probably other people as well. And I got a call, and I went in to meet Oliver in a small little bookshop across from Virgin. I think it was Virgin at that time. Was it Virgin on, on Sunset Boulevard? Right about books, uh, book soup. I know there was a tower. I'm not sure about a virgin. Tower. It was tower. Well, it was tower. Became virgin. Yes, it was tower. And he was in an, an office above. And I was, I had done not a lot of work outside of the documentary. I'd done 
some reshoots with Alex Cox, Repo Man, and I done some second camera, but really more private that Jacques Haitken would oversee for Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'd done some third or fourth camera work on Electric Boogaloo, but that was about the extent of my work. Oliver, the one question I remember Oliver asking me is, I've said this before, is can you intercut a long lens with a wide angle lens? Of course you can. And there was a little more discussion. And then and Oliver, as I recall, he may not, he may not agree with this, but it was quite hot and he was in a leather jacket. And he was sweating profusely. I took that to mean one thing since he was a writer of Scarface, that something was taking place that was emptied to his body. He denies this to this day, but whatever it was hot in that room. And he did send me next door to the producer. I talked to the producer. And then a few days later, I got the script to read and they hired me. I think I was 18 when JFK came out and that movie blew my mind. Just the use of the different formats and just the way that whole thing was put together. Can you tell me a little bit more about the making of that? Did you shoot everything multiple times with different cameras or how did you even accomplish that feat? We were pretty studied with that particular film. And the centerpiece of, of JFK is, of course, the Zapruder film, which now we're hearing so much more about like missing frames and such and back into the left, of course, which when, but the printer film being an eight millimeter was a centerpiece for us to work from. Then everything moved outside of that. And whether it was in full color 35 or if it was not quite the truth or we were imagining it to be the truth or people were saying to, we would play with. 35 black and white or 16 black and white, but they all had reasons for being in the film. And that was, we found a process, sort of a dictionary in which to shoot. We didn't duplicate things. Um, we pretty much stuck to the world we are in. There may have been instances, but I can't remember them where we did duplicate something in black and white, or it may have been altered later in his in post if you shot in color. And to make it into black and white for him, can't remember all the details of that. I'd have to go back to my notes to see what changed. But it was a very studied approach in opposition to our work together on Natural Born Killers, which was much more a Pollock approach to filmmaking. Throw it on the canvas, find what, what the rhythm of that canvas is and what the colors are doing, but to work with many formats. Unless, of course, it was a television show with Rod Dangerfield, which had a specific camera only for that sequence. But we sometimes would shoot some things in 35 and then switch to 16 and then go to Super 8 and duplicate a couple of shots. For example, the shot outside on a landscape in a desert and the two of them were walking and arguing. And I remember saying, this would be better looking in black and white than it will in color. He said, but I really want it in color. And we shot color in black and white and he made his choice in the edit i think he used the color but that was something that i didn't have have a problem working with at all it's like just because a writer that's a director such as oliver is also a writer as an editor he's rewriting his, his film and he had very good editors and corwin on that particular film 
and they found a language. It's very much what I format changes with Earl Morris, fast, cheap, and out of control, who I think use those changes. Of, that was much more immense in terms of format changes. One day we were shooting the mole rats. I don't know if you've seen the film. The mole rats and or tunnels. I haven't mean, got a camera there. So we called Roto-Rooter and Roto-Rooter came in with one of their cameras and we set it down the holes to the mole rats. Arrow was like outside of himself. Like, how cool is this? Yeah. We, and, and then he would take these things and he, from, he just has a brilliant mind. It was, it was a pleasure to work with and his brain is extraordinarily tight and it moves everywhere. Not certain words going and then it's there. And now you got, you got to be there. You got to get back. It, it's magical and, and frustrating, but frustrating in uh, a highly creative way. It, it always, his work, he produces great work. And so the same thing with Oliver, just amazing when they get to the high level, when, when they're reaching the height of their skills. Another person that you've worked with who's no slouch is Martin Scorsese. And the work that you did on Hugo, all of your work that you've done with him has been fantastic. But to do 3D plus your channeling the old films from the early 1900s, plus you've got this fantasy world that you're building inside of Maria World of Paris. Just, it was amazing to see the work that you did on that. There's two films I think Marty got robbed on that I worked on. He certainly deserved an Academy Award for directing Aviator. And he certainly deserved another Academy Award for doing Hugo. It was extraordinarily brilliant work. And it holds up today. I had to watch it. I watched it recently with the woman I'm with, Melody. And Melody and I watched it. And she hadn't seen it. And I was a little distraught that I couldn't watch it in 3D. Because I think it is a more visionary film in 3D than it is in 2D. But the story is as strong and two as it is in three but it lacks the we struggled so hard at trying to achieve in depth and that depth is integral to that story just as when you watch jim's work on the avatars you want the 3d experience it's fantastic in two but when you can see it in three it's more immersive and marty and i were learning three at that time and those are the first Alexis that we had. I think we had one, two, three, four. And we originally had one and two, but we needed two, two more. And eventually they got them all and they were constantly shifting. With air, those are the first Airy 35s. And uh, Alexis has been extraordinarily kind to me in my life. Those are the first that Chiba was shooting with the Alexis 35, with Bruno and with Alejandro miniseries, I believe it is, but I'm not entirely certain what the project, but it was in Europe. And this was the first feature that they were on. It's air. It was a learning experience for both those films to learn the limitations of the color space. But it also was fantastic for both Marty and myself and Hugo to be able to see on a very good monitor, the influences of depth with IO, the camera just shifting slightly. If the lens is slightly off, head and how far you could push it, how far you couldn't. And we were vaguely getting there. We had our own digital suite on Shepherd at Shepperton. So we were able to do work to color. And Marty had 
a whole series of ideas, like he, as he did with Aviator, that things would move progressively in different, you'd go back in time, autochrome, this sort of feel. The, in Aviator, he had two color, he had three color English, three color Technicolor, working with all those various LUTs for the film. And here we were developing those even hand tinted and different between tinting and toning and all that came into play. And Greg had done a lot of restoration. So he knew those and he would say he would grade and someone would come in the room because the editing room was up above. She came down, we need to rework this because I'm having a problem with that matching this. So it was a beautiful way. It actually informed me as to the process I currently utilize as much as possible when a film can afford it is to have a grader on set and not truly try to create a small digital intermediate. You can't do all of it because you have so much more to do. Whereas in a film, you're only doing two hours or whatever the length of the film may be, but here you're doing hours of material every day. And so if you put up a window or you influence a face or you want to do this or separate, it takes much more time, but in the long run, it's worthwhile because the director has a, a much more even film for screening to the public and can easily alter it to make it match even more when he gets down to the point or she gets down to the point of putting it on onto a screen. Looking at your filmography, I, I figure you have to be very easy to work with just because when people start to work with you, they work with you for a long time. Looking at like the films of Quentin Tarantino, you've been working with him now for the last few movies, you're Martin Scorsese's, you're Oliver Stone's. With Ayer, is this what, your second time working with Ben Affleck? My second, yeah. I did a small piece with Jennifer with him, but yeah, my second. So what is that experience like for you working with him? I love Ben. He's, he was very tight on this film. I think he's from beginning to end. He, and also his relationship with Matt is very close. So the two of them and Matt being a star as a lead actor, they work so well, they communicate and also also his relationship with Jason and Chris and Messina and, and even because Chris was also in Live By Night. And there's this entire, that team was, everyone was on top form for every shot because they knew it was going to be done X number of days. And there was going to be very few takes and they had to nail it. That's it. And no one came in unprepared. And my crew, which are the best, I think, in the world were at the highest level and enjoying it. The difference is in some films you shoot, you don't enjoy the process. The crew doesn't enjoy the process. They get bored. They get this, whatever it might be. And this film, there's no time for boredom. Number one, Ben was extraordinarily kind, as was everyone, in trying to make the shots work as fast as possible, figuring it out. It was fantastic. It was, it's one of the reasons that film feels it just feels like it was made. It, it feels natural and its movements and inconsistencies visually, they all, they all seem to add to what the, the story is and uh, what Ben finally made out of it. And it reminded me a little bit of what I had done on Wag the Dog, which was a very short scheduled film. And I think we had a 30 day schedule on that film. We came in at 29, but it was, that kind of speed too. Bob was 
delivering at the high level and was at a high level. Hoffman, Dustin was at a very high level. It was just in a great script. It's remarkable when you can do it that way, but it's very rare because on films that shot this rapidly, you don't have these kind of scripts, nor this kind of acting power. Hey, Viola, you want to, like, what is missing from air? You, know, you have brilliant actors in every role. Ben would sometimes operate, which always made me laugh because he was steel shots, but it, they wouldn't be anywhere I want to put them. You know, it's like he would set our shots. Like he said, one from here, I want this size and that size. And he just knew what he wanted. But then he'd grab a camera, go search for other shots. Sometimes rather than watching the monitor and what was taking place. And I don't know. That's Dan. He's operating. Let him do it. Let the man do it. And he got some very good material and he cut it in in such a way that he did the film a good service. I was curious as far as like how much you discuss with Ben before you actually start to shoot and where some of the decisions come in, because I was just rewatching it and that scene where Matt comes in and he's talking with Viola for the very first time. And you've got those nice close-ups of both of them, but especially on Matt and the camera's doing a move. It's like almost like he's at the same place in the frame, but the camera's definitely moving. I can see the background going. That's just brilliant stuff. How do you come up with something like that? A little bit of that is improv in terms of the camera move. They're on remote heads. And I know I want to go somewhere. And I know he wants me to get to that spot. So sometimes that's what that's the result of being able to make that slight move. You do. I know what you're talking about. So I, we also had to shoot very fast. So they, we used telescopic cranes. And my crew's extraordinarily knowledgeable about how to move and on headsets with me, like you're on a headset and I speak constantly to them about how I want it. And I'm in another room and my camera assistant knows what's happening. He's on the same headset. So he knows if I'm making a camera move forward, ben, Ben's watching it. And if he doesn't, if he, if he doesn't want it to go someplace, he, he lets me know immediately if he's not operating. So that's how that happened. And, and those are intuitive they're not storyboarded that way to look like that in most cases or at least in some cases so that was the result of that that's how you got the result of what you're talking about you were talking about watching a movie with your girlfriend and i'm so curious how is it watching movies with you are you constantly oh they shouldn't have done that or oh that was fantastic or are you providing like a, a dp commentary for everything no she's a dp as well so yeah, Melody, actually, we just had a baby in Paris. So it's been good to be down to have time to spend with the newborn, but it's when, when I watch a movie, I don't talk, I try not to care. Okay. I'll do it this way. She may have a phone by her side and I know I'll get upset because I'll say, are you interested in watching the film or do you want to text somebody? And it's not really just her. It's so many people. Their concentration levels with a phone, it, it's as if life, just watch, watch. If you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. We watched Hugo together recently, and you'd seen Hugo before, but this, this time she wanted to talk through how did you do that? And I was fine. That I love doing it. Sometimes I'll say, let's watch it. 
now let's go back and look at it. And you ask me the questions you have and we'll do that on that film. And uh, I have no problem with that, uh, but no, when I'm watching movies, I'm singularly attached to the film. Um, recently I watched many of Kotagarver's films because I received a letter asking about doing a talk in France by him. And so I thought, oh, well, and I went back, I just went two days in a row, just as many as I could pull up. And I'd seen all his work, Capital, et cetera, the end, but I knew very well the beginning, yeah, Z and State of Siege. And I knew that world so well. And but yet it was great to go back and, this, and then to read about that. And sometimes it would be a commentary on a certain film or there'd be, it was off of criteria and you'd get him discussing or other people discussing. And I love that aspect because then it would take me to, oh, let's go. What's that? Wait, we don't, let's watch somebody else, a movie. And I'd slide into a different movie with him and, and then come back to Coasting Hours. But it was like that world. And that's where I think film is. It's constantly letting one thing lead you to another. I have a, a teacher from University of Vermont, Dr. Frank Manchow, and he and I text every day. Oh, oh I mean, email every day. And we talk about movies and we'll just get on a run. It doesn't matter. It might start with Errol Morris. It might start with Errol Flynn. I just don't know where it's going to go. And then that film will take you down the path. If you're doing Errol Flynn, what director are you dealing with? If we're dealing with Anthony Mann and Jimmy Stewart, how do we follow Anthony Mann or do we follow Jimmy Stewart? And that's, that process is really, it's quite a fat, that process is a very fascinating process to me in, in respect to learning more than I would if I just did one film pushed on randomly to something new. Which happens when we stream because we all ran out of films to stream during COVID. I mean, I emptied Netflix. I emptied Apple. There was nothing left. You start to go back inside of each one of those. And you find criteria on apples and you go to criteria and you start to dive into that. Then you, gotta, then you go to your criteria and now you're in the middle of criteria and suddenly you find yourself with Renoir and now you're watching Rules of the Game which I just watched recently. And I went from that to, to river just to go opposite sides of a spectrum and, uh, or Melville and like every one of Melville's films. Like, and I've seen them countless times, but each time it's a revelation to me. Sometimes it's without sound Just shut the sound off. Let's see how it works. Mr. Richardson. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. A pleasure. Thank you. to set a pit for me.
someone I could pass to. 